Take your Bibles, please, and turn to John's second epistle. As Pastor Wayne mentioned, that's our passage for today. Second John is the, the book that we will review. Second John. And the theme this morning is do not be deceived. Here's the key concept for today. God's truth is a trustworthy anchor. God's truth is a trustworthy anchor. We see that in 2 John. If you're finding it, it might be easier to start in the back of the book and move forward because we're getting along in our treatment of the New Testament. 2 John is where we are today. And when we come to the second letter of John, John's second epistle, and the third letter, the author calls himself the elder. And in this letter, the letter before us, he says that he writes this letter to the chosen or the elect lady. Look at verse 1 of 2 John says this, The elder to the chosen lady and her children whom I love in the truth. And not only I, but also all those who know the truth. Now right away we see an opportunity for confusion here. And that is, why does he not name himself why does he call himself the elder? And who is this chosen or elect lady that he writes to? Now, let me take the, the first question first, and that is, we are, are, are historically and from a scholarship point of view sure that this letter was written by the Apostle John, and the reason he calls himself the elder is because that is what he was when he wrote this book, and how he was referred to by the people to whom he writes it, and that is uh, the elder. He was an elderly man. This is late in his life. Uh, John the Apostle was the longest living of all the apostles. And in a culture that revered and respected age as a source of wisdom, the title of the elder was an, a title of honor. And so he refers to himself in that way. But who is he writing to? That is actually a little bit more of a mystery. And down through the ages, there have been various theories about who this chosen or elect lady is. The reality is many scholars say that it's not a woman at all, it's not a person at all. As a matter of fact, that he, they say that John is writing to a church uh, using the personification of the elect lady as describing this particular church and her children would be the members of that church. And it could be that that's the case. It could be that that's the truth. If so, he's using this coded language, so to speak, most likely to uh, avoid detection of who he writes to because he's writing inside a context of extreme persecution. John writes this letter while Domitian is the emperor in Rome. And Domitian was a true blue believer in the Roman pantheon of gods. He believed completely in that old ancient Roman system of pagan worship and he thought that any other religion inside the empire was, would, would be to make the gods mad. And so he sought to stamp out other religions, Christianity being one. And so there was a persecution during this time. But it does seem a, a kind of a strange way to refer to a church as the elect lady. And in fact, the language gets a little more strained when he signs off the letter and gives greetings from the lady's sister's children. Once again, it could be that he's referring to a sister church 
in this, in this coded kind of way, but I tend to operate under the principle K-I-S-S. You know what that stands for? Keep it simple, stupid, you know. I, I don't see any overwhelming reason why we shouldn't say that he's writing to a woman, uh, a friend of the family in his twilight years. However, I hold on to that opinion loosely because it may be that he means to write to a church and one day in heaven I'll ask him about it. However, if I am right that he is writing to an individual and that individual is a woman, this is the only New Testament letter that's addressed to a woman. And, and he's writing this letter in, in terms of a response to a communication that has been sent to him, a, a, a communication of concern, because there is a particular teacher that this individual is concerned about who seems to be teaching error. And so John has been contacted, and, and, and there's a, a, a back and forth in terms of how should I treat this person who's teaching what I believe to be error. John addresses that in verse 7. He says, many deceivers who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh have gone out into the world. Any such person is the deceiver and the antichrist. Those, there's a deceiver who is teaching false doctrine. I once heard the country saying, it goes like this, better not to know so much than to know so much that just ain't so. Better not to know so much. And this, this false teacher knows a lot and is teaching a lot that just isn't so. And John is addressing the error here. Uh, I like the, the writings of Richard Letterer. Richard Letterer is a history teacher uh, in, in a, a high school. In fact, he identifies the school as St. Paul's School. Now, he doesn't identify where St. Paul's School is. And probably that is to, you know, uh, protect the guilty, as so to speak here. But in St. Paul's School, what he's done, he has he is compiled history according to his eighth graders from their papers and their history tests that they've taken, and this is what they know to be so regarding the facts of history. I'm going to share with you some of these facts that they know to be true. I'm quoting now. The inhabitants of Egypt were called mummies. They lived in the Sahara Desert. The climate of the Sahara is such that the inhabitants have to live elsewhere. I'll let that sink in for a moment. These Egyptians built the pyramids in the shape of huge triangular cubes. Pharaoh forced the Hebrew slaves to make bread without straw, and Moses led them into the wilderness where they had to eat unleavened bread, which is bread without any ingredients. <laughs> now that's diet bread right there, bread without any ingredients. Without the Greeks, they continue, without the Greeks, we would not have history. Socrates which was a famous Greek who died from an overdose of wedlock. <laughs> the pilgrims crossed the ocean. This is called Pilgrim's Progress. Bach was the most famous composer in the world, and so was Handel. Handel was half German, half Italian, and half English. He was very large. <laughs> Samuel Morse invented a code for telepathy. Louis Pasteur invented a cure for rabbis. Now, of course, that's just spelling right there. Karl Marx was a part of the famous comedy team, the Marx Brothers. <laughs> they knew all of this. 
But of course, it's just not so. But they were sure of it at the time. And the teaching that this lady is hearing is just not so. It's not good, uh, good uh, theology, good teaching. And, and the lady is instinctively uneasy. She's sensing that something is amiss with this false teaching. So she, uh, she writes uh, to John to inquire about how she should feel, what she should think. And John is responding to her in this brief letter. And he begins by giving her a commendation. And that commendation is found in verse 4. It says, It has given me great joy to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as the Father commanded us. What a great joy it must be for a Christian parent to hear those words, right? That your children are walking in truth. Your children are exemplifying what it means to live out the faith of Jesus Christ. It's fantastic to hear that as a parent, and it reminds me to mention to many of you who are children's workers, who are Sunday school teachers, youth leaders here at, at Quail, that you can give this same kind of joy to the parents and grandparents of the children that you work with. You see, there will be times when you teachers and youth leaders and Sunday school teachers and prime time leaders, when you see a, a children in your class or in your group do or say something wonderful, demonstrating the fact that they understand and are seeking to live out the faith of Jesus Christ. And that's the moment when you can file that away and be sure to tell their parents or their grandparents about it. Catch them doing or saying something great and share that with their parents and their parents receive this joy that John is giving to this elect lady. He shares that joy with her so that she can understand but that her children are walking in the faith. It's a wonderful gift. But after he commends her, he goes on to give some commands. Let's read verses 5 and 6. He says, And now, dear lady, I'm not writing you a new command, but one that we have had from the beginning. I ask that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk in obedience to his commands. As you have heard from the beginning, his command is that you walk in love. John's commands are this, be obedient and be loving. Be both, obedient and loving. You see, there is a lie out there. And the lie says that you're not able to be both loving to people and treat them lovingly and live a life that's in obedience to the standards of the Word and proclaim those standards of the Word. There's a lie out there that says you have to choose between the two. And John does not want the chosen lady or us to fall for that lie. Here's what he's saying. He's saying the true test of love for one another will be to live in obedience to the will and the Word of God. And the truest tense of, uh, uh, sense of living in obedience to the Word of God is that you walk in love. Now maybe you're saying, well, that sounds like circular reasoning. And if you're coming up with that conclusion, that's what you're meant to, to do. You are meant to notice the, the circularness of that reasoning because John wants us to pause in our reading of the letter here and, and think about what he's saying. He wants us to examine what he means. And the question that he really wants us to ask is, what is love? What does it mean to, to live a life of love? Now, when a chemist answers the question, what is love? He may say, well, love is a chemical reaction. 
It's the producing of testosterone and estrogen and brain chemicals of dopamine and serotonin and all of this brings about a, a, a pleasurable bond between people. If a philosopher answers the question, what is love? He may say, well, it's a passionate connection in an existential way between two individuals. If a romantic novelist answers the question, what is love? They may say, well, it's, it's that which brings meaning, uh, meaning to our fleeting existence here on the planet Earth. But when John says, answers the question, what is love? He answers it this way. It starts with God. And love means loving God back and truly loving God will result in obedience to His Word. And as we obey His Word and His will, we will be demonstrating love for one another. Because God's will for His creation is the best and most loving thing that His creation can experience. John's point is this. At the center of all that is, you will find a heart of love. And the Almighty, and all that He asks of us, and all that He requires of us, all of that is birthed in love. Thus, when with gentleness and respect we explain from the Word of God what the truth is versus error, when we explain from the Word of God what morality is versus immorality, when we explain right versus wrong from the Word of God, it is the most loving thing that we can do. And when we fail to understand that, we fall into one of two extremes that unfortunately there are too much of out in the world today. One of those extremes is the stereotypical, cold, heartless Christian, long on judgmentalism and short on compassion, and the other extreme is the over-tolerant modernist who never uses his or her discernment and labels everything as equally true, which means everything is equally false for fear of offending anybody and being perceived as intolerant. The message is this. We must always be intolerant with error while we demonstrate love for the persons around us. We must always demonstrate our love for God by living according to His Word and humbly, lovingly helping others to understand what His Word teaches so that they can live it out as well. John says, be loving and be obedient because living the way that God has designed us to live and encouraging others to do so, that is the most loving way that you can live. And then John goes on to give us a caution in verse 7. He says, Many deceivers who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh have gone out into the world. Any such person is the deceiver and the Antichrist. He's saying you need to be cautioned against li listening to everything that everybody says without any sense of discernment. Make sure that the teachers that you're listening to, he says to the elect lady and to us, are those who teach the truth from the Word of God in an orthodox way. Be aware that error is out there. And oftentimes, those who are teaching error will use the same words as those who are teaching the truth. 
So don't simply listen for catchphrases. Don't listen for magic words, and if somebody just says the magic words, automatically you believe them. Be aware that there is error out there, he says, and oftentimes that error is spoken by very attractive people. And very attractive people around us run to that error because the error is the lie of the spirit of the age, in every age. John says in his context, these false teachers don't believe that Jesus came in the flesh. The particular heresy that John is addressing has a title. It has a name. We call it docetism. Docetism is taken from the Greek word dokeo, which means to appear or to seem. And you remember last week we talked about Gnosticism and about how the Gnostics believed that God would never have anything to do with anything physical. And so the, the real God, the supreme being, according to Gnostic thinking, was not the creator God that the Bible explains, but there must be a bigger God behind Yahweh who is totally spiritual. Now, the subsets of that heresy kind of broke themselves out, but one of them was docetism because they didn't believe that Jesus would really take on flesh. And so they said, well, it only appears like he was human. It only seemed to you like he was a, a human being. And thus the, the name of the, the heresy, docetism. And the Bible teaches, however, that when Jesus walked the earth, He was both fully God and fully man in a miracle called the Incarnation. The Bible shows us that God the Son existed prior to Bethlehem in glory, and He chose in an act of humble love to take on flesh so that when He went to the cross, He represented you and me there. If He wasn't human, He didn't represent us there. And if He wasn't God, He couldn't save us there. But Jesus was fully God and fully human at the same time. And when He went to the cross, He humbled Himself and, those, and, and, and He died in our place taking our punishment. The two natures of Jesus, fully God and fully divine, are important. Because as we understand that vital truth, it brings in line all the other doctrines that we must believe that revolve around that truth. The doctrine of sin, the doctrine of salvation, the doctrine of eternal life. And when you think of it, falsehood, the essential error that almost every cult and every false religion makes when a, uh, is a falsehood about Jesus Christ. From the Muslim to the Mormon, it is all a deviation of what the Bible teaches about Jesus Christ. And when you err there, you really go astray. And John is noting that the false teachers err in what they believe about Jesus Christ. So he says, don't be deceived. For there are many deceivers that are out there that are attractive. They sound good and they look good, but you need to listen for content, not just vocabulary. In verse 8, he says, be careful because you are able to be influenced by these false teachers and you must not do that. And then verse 9, he says, be advised because there are those who run ahead. Look at verse 9. He says, anyone who runs ahead and does not continue in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever continues in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. 
Now, it's interesting, uh, there's a, a translation issue that goes on in verse 9 because some of your Bibles read differently than the translation I just read. It's very hard to bring from Greek into English the phrase that the NIV translates, run ahead. Some of your translations say, does not abide, or some might say, goes too far. And, and the, the issue is this. Running ahead, as the NIV translated, means the individual who is no longer satisfied with what the Bible teaches, who's no longer satisfied with the basic teachings of Scripture, who thinks that they have outgrown those teachings, who run ahead of those teachings, so to speak, considering the Bible to be out of date and simplistic. Those who run ahead, the way that John is using that phrase, assume that modern ideas are automatically better ideas. They assume that if it's been thought of recently, it must be an improvement. And John says, all you're doing is running ahead of what is the truth, and so you're getting into error. Do not be deceived, and do not receive those teachers as if you believe what they said. Look at verse 10. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, the true teaching about Jesus, do not take him into your house or welcome him. Now, what is he referring to? What he's referring to is that in this uh, day and age, in John's day, there was traveling teachers and they traveled from town to town, city to city, and they, and they taught their particular philosophy, and they depended on people to welcome them into their homes and put them up. And when you welcome that traveling teacher into your home and you put that teacher up, you are declaring that, I believe what this person is saying. We see that in the life of the Apostle Paul. When Paul goes to Philippi and Lydia is converted to Christ, she says to the small band that he's traveling with, come and stay at my home, use my home as your base of operations. And she is declaring and saying that I am a believer in this message. John says, you must not do that when you encounter these false teachers. You must not give the impression that you support their work. You must not give the impression that you are on their side. You must let it be known that there is a distinction between what you believe and what these false teachers are preaching. Otherwise, no one will be able to separate out the message and the truth will not be known. Make a distinction between you and those who are perverting the message. Now, I want you to know that that teaching, this principle, matters to us today. It matters to me today. Some of you uh, have asked from time to time. I get the emails, so I know. You've asked why I am not on the platform at certain civic functions here in Stockton, certain events where clergy from all kinds of different religions are called together to be on the platform representing uh, what's called the faith community in our, in our world today. And I want you to understand, I have to think through those events very carefully. Now, I'm not talking about the events where we join together with other churches that preach the gospel message and we do a revival service. I'm not talking about inter-congregational or denominational events among Christian Bible-preaching uh, churches. I'm talking about those kind of events that the world would call ecumenical, 
when all kinds of different religions are in the same setting. And I have to think through how that will be perceived. And here's what I want you to know. If that setting or the procedure of that event gives the impression that the various faiths that are represented there are equivalent, or if the participants are, are giving the impression that this variety of religions are all on the same path or all pray to the same God, that's when I do not participate. Why? Because these things... And I want to tell you why. Because these things are not equal in God's eyes. All right? My job is to represent the true gospel. My job is to represent Jesus Christ even to those and say, through the blood of Christ you can be saved. Come to Christ and be redeemed. Don't give the impression, John is saying, that you can't tell the difference between true and false, right and wrong. Stand up for what is true. And then in verse 13, he signs off the letter. He says, the children of your chosen sister send their greetings. Now, once again, it could be that he's talking about a sister church, but it appears to me that he's, keep it simple, stupid, it appears to me that he's talking about a real sister of a family that he knows. But the bottom line of this little letter is this, doctrine matters. You need to know what you believe. And you need to, to understand your faith and why you believe it. And as you live out what you believe based on the Word of God, it is a loving example. Now, for that reason, uh, because doctrine matters, I invite you to, uh, as you leave today, if you haven't ever read our statement of faith here at Quail Lakes Baptist Church, we have printed extra copies, and they're on the visitor's table in the lobby. I, I uh, ask you, the, the document looks like this, okay? And I ask you to pick up a copy if you haven't ever. If you've already done that, that's fine. Pick up a copy, read through it. If you have questions about what we're saying in this doctrinal statement, shoot me an email. I would be happy to explain and engage on that level with you. Why? Because we must know what we believe and, and why we believe it to be true. The bottom line is this. Living for Jesus is not a choice between biblical truth or love. It is living out the truth in love. Why? Because God's truth is love.